0: Section 10 of Night Watches by W. W. Jacobs. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. His other self. They're as like as two peas. Him and his brother said the night watchman, gazing blandly at the indignant face of the lighterman on the barge below. And the only way I know this one is Sam is because Bill don't use bad language. Twins they are, but the likeness is only outside. Bill's art is as white as snow. He cut off a plug of tobacco, and placing it in his cheek waited expectantly. "'White as snow,' he repeated. "'That's me,' said the lighter man, as he pushed his unwieldy craft from the jetty. "'I'll tell Sam your opinion of em—so long.' The watchman went a shade redder than usual. "'That's twins all over,' he said sourly, always deceiving people. "'It's Bill Arter all, and instead of hurting his feelings I've just been flatterin' em up.' "'It ain't the first time I've had trouble over a likeness. I've been a twin myself in a manner of speaking it didn't last long but it lasted long enough for me to always be sorry for twins and to make a lot of allowance for them it must be very hard to have another man going about with your face on his shoulders and getting it into trouble it was a year or two ago now i was sitting one evening at the gate smoking a pipe and looking at a newspaper i had found in the office when i see a gentleman coming along from the swing bridge well-dressed clean-shaved chap he was smoking a cigarette. He was walking slow, and looking about him casual-like, until his eyes fell on me, when he gave a perfect jump of surprise, and Arter, looking at me very hard, walked on a little way, and then turned back. He did it twice, and I was just going to say something to him—something that I'd been getting ready for him—when he spoke to me. "'Good evening,' he says. "'Good evening,' I says, folding the paper over and looking at him rather severe. "'I hope you'll excuse me staring,' he says, very polite but I've never seen such a face and figure as yours in all my life. Never. Ah, you ought to have seen me a few years ago, I says. I'm like everybody else. I'm getting on.' "'Rubbish,' he says. You couldn't be better if you tried. It's marvellous, wonderful, it's the very thing I've been looking for. Why, if you'd been made to order you couldn't have been better. I thought at fust he was by way of trying to get a drink out of me. I've been played that game before, but instead of that he asked me whether I'd do him the pleasure of having one with him. We went over to the Albion, and I believe I could have had it all in a pail, if only I'd like to say the word. And all the time I was drinking he was looking me up and down, till I didn't know where to look, as the saying is. "'I came down here to look for somebody like you,' he says, but I never dreamt I should have such luck as this. I'm an actor, and I've got to play the part of a sailor, and I've been worried some time how to make up for the part. Do you understand?' "'No,' I says, looking at him. "'I want to look the real thing,' he says, speaking low so that the landlord shouldn't hear. "'I want to make myself the living image of you. If that don't fetch em, I'll give up the stage and grow cabbages.' "'Make yourself like me,' I says. "'Why, you're no more like me than I'm like a sea-sick monkey.' "'Not so much,' he says. "'That's where the art comes in.' He stood me another drink, and then, taking my arm in a cuddling sort of way and calling me dear boy, he led me back to the wharf and explained. He said he would come around next evening with what he called his make-up box, and paint his face and make himself up till people wouldn't know one from the other. "'And what about your figure?' I says, looking at him. "'A cushion,' he says, winking. Or maybe a couple. And what about clothes? You'd have to sell me those you've got on—hat and all—and boots.' I put a price on him that I thought would have finished him then and there, but it didn't, and at last arter paying me so many more compliments that they began to get into my head I fixed up a meeting for the next night, and went off. And mind, he says, coming back, not a word to a living soul. He went off again, and after going to the bull's-head, and having a pint to clear my head, I went and sat down in the office and thought it over. It seemed all right to me, as far as I could see, but perhaps the pint didn't clear my head enough—perhaps I ought to have had two pints. I lay awake best part of next day thinking it over, and when I got up, I had made up my mind, I put my clothes in a sack, and then I put on some others much like them as possible, only perhaps a bit older, in case the missus should get asking questions, and then I sat wondering how to get out with the sack without her noticing it. She's got a very inquiring mind, and I wasn't going to tell her any lies about it, besides which I couldn't think of one. I got out at last by playing a game on her. I pretended to drop a Dollar in the washes, and while she was busy on her hands and knees I went off as comfortable as you please. I got into the office with it all right, and, just as it was getting dark, a cab drove up to the wharf, and the actor chap jumped out with a big leather bag. I took him into the private office, and he was so ready with his money for the clothes that I offered to throw the sack in. He changed into my clothes first of all, and then, asking me to sit down in front of him, he took a looking-glass and a box out of his bag and began to alter his face. What, with sticks of colored paint and false eyebrows and a beard stuck on with gum and trimmed with a pair of scissors, it was more like a conjuring trick than anything else. Then he took a wig out of his bag and pressed it on his head, and put on the cap, and put some black stuff on his teeth, and there he was. We both looked into the glass together while he gave the finishing touches, and then he clapped me on the back and said I was the handsomest sailor-man in England. "'I shall have to make up a bit heavier when I'm behind the floats,' he says but this is enough for ear. What do you think of the imitation of your voice? I think I've got it exact. If you ask me, I says, it sounds like a pal parrot with a cold in the ead. And now for your walk, he says, looking as pleased as if I'd said something else, come to the door and see me go up the wharf. I didn't like to hurt his feelings, but I thought I should a bust. He walked up that wharf like a dancing bear in a pair of trousers too tight for it, but he was so pleased with himself that I didn't like to tell him so. He went up and down two or three times, and I never saw anything so ridiculous in my life. That's all very well for us, he says, but what about other people? That's what I want to know. I'll go and have a drink and see whether anybody spots me. Before I could stop him, he started off to the bull's head and went in, while I stood outside and watched him. Half a pint of four ale, he says, smacking down a penny. I see the landlord draw the beer and give it to him, but he didn't seem to take no notice of him. Then, just to open his eyes a bit, I walked in and put down a penny and asked for half a pint. The landlord was just wiping down the counter at the time, and when I gave my order he looked up and stood staring at me with a wet cloth held up in the air. He didn't say a word—not a single word. He stood there for a moment smiling at us foolish-like, and then he let go of the beer engine what he was holding in his left hand, and sat down heavy on the bar floor. We both put our heads over the counter to see what had happened to him and he started to make the most horrible noise I have ever heard in my life. I wonder it didn't bring the fire-engines. The actor chap bolted out as if he'd been shot, and I was just thinking of following him when the landlord's wife and his two daughters came rushing out and asked me what I had done to him. "'There—there—was two of them,' says the landlord, trembling, and holding on to his wife's arm as they helped him up and got him in the chair. Two of them.' two of what?' says his wife. Two. Two watchmen," says the landlord, both exactly alike, and both asking for half a pint of four ale. "'Yes, yes,' says his wife. "'You come and lay down, Pa,' says the gals. "'I tell you there was,' says the landlord, getting his colour back with temper. "'Yes, yes, I know all about it,' says his wife. "'You come inside for a bit. And, Gertie, you bring your father a soda—a large soda.' They got him in arter a lot of trouble, but three times he came back as far as the door holding on to them and taking a little peep at me the last time he shook his head at me and said if i did it again i could go and get my arse pint somewhere else i finished the beer what the actor had left and after telling the landlord i hoped his eyesight would be better in the morning i went outside and after a careful look around walked back to the wharf i pushed the wicket open a little way and peeped in the actor was standing just by the first crane talking to two of the hands off of the saltram he'd got his back in the light but how it was they didn't twig his voice I can't think. They was so busy talking that I crept along by the side of the wall and got to the office without their seeing me. I went into the private office and turned out the gas there and sat down to wait for him. Then I heard a noise outside that took me to the door again and kept me there, holding on to the doorpost and gasping for my breath. The cook of the saltram was sitting on a paraffin cask playing the mouth-organ. And the actor with his arms folded across his stomach was dancing a hornpipe as if he'd gone mad. I never saw anything so ridiculous in my life, and when I recollected that they thought it was me, I thought I should have dropped. A night watchman can't be too careful, and I knew that it'd be all over whopping by next morning, that I had been dancing to a two penny halfpenny mouth organ played by a ship's cook. A man that does his duty always has a lot of people ready to believe the worst of him. I went back into the dark office and waited, and by-and-by I heard them coming along to the gate and patting him on the back and saying he ought to be a pantomime instead of wasting his time night-watching. He left him at the gate, and then he came into the office smiling as if he'd done something clever. "'What do you think of me for a understudy?' he says, laughing. "'They all thought it was you. There wasn't one of them. I had the slightest suspicion—not one.' "'And what about my character?' I says, folding my arms across my chest, and looking at him. Character he says, staring, why there's no arm in dancing? It's an innocent enjoyment. It ain't one of my innocent enjoyments, I says, and I don't want to get the credit of it if they hadn't been sitting in a pub all evening, they'd have spotted you at once. Oh, he says, very huffy, how your voice, I says, you try and mimic a pal parrot and think it's like me, and for another thing, you walk about as though you're stuffed with sawdust. I beg your pardon, he says, the voice and the walk are exact exact. "'What?' I says, looking him up and down. "'You stand there and have the impudence to tell me that my voice is like that?' "'I do,' he says. "'Then I'm sorry for you,' I says. "'I thought you'd got more sense.' He stood looking at me and gnawing his finger. And by-and-by, he says, "'Are you married?' he says. "'I am,' I says, very short. "'Where do you live?' he says. "'I told him.' "'Very good,' he says. "'Perhaps I'll be able to convince you after all.' By the way, what do you call your wife Missus? "'Yes,' I says, staring at him,—'but what's it got to do with you?' "'Nothing,' he says, nothing. Only I'm going to try the parrot voice and the sawdust walk on her, that's all. If I can deceive her—that'll settle it.' "'Deceive her?' I says. You think I'm going to let you go round to my house and get me into trouble with the missus like that? Well, you must be crazy. That dancing must have got into your head. "'Where's the arm?' he says, very sulky. Arm, I says, I won't have it. That's all. And if you knew my missus, you'd know without any telling. I'll bet you a pound to a sixpence she wouldn't know me. He says, very earnest. She won't have the chance. I says. So that's all about it. He stood there argufying for about ten minutes, but I was as firm as a rock. I wouldn't move an inch. And at last, arter we was both on the point of losing our tempers, he picked up his bag and said, as how we must be getting off home. "'But ain't you going to take those things off fust?' I says. "'No,' he says, smiling. "'I'll wait till I get home. Ta-ta!' He put his bag on his shoulder and walked to the gate, with me following of him. "'I expect I shall see a cab soon,' he says. "'Good-bye.' "'What are you laughing at?' I says. "'Only thoughts,' he says. "'Have you got far to go?' I says. "'No, just about the same distance as you have,' he says, and he went off spluttering like a soda-water bottle. I took the broom and ad a good sweep up arter he had gorn and I was just in the middle of it when the cook and the other two chaps from the Saltram came back with three other sailormen and a brewer's drayman they had brought to see me dance." "'Same as you did a little while ago, Bill,' says the cook, taking out his beastly mouth-organ and wiping it on his sleeve. "'What tune would you like?' I couldn't get away from him, and when I told them I'd never danced in my life the cook asked me where I expected to go to he told the draymen that i'd been dancing like a fairy in sea-boots and they all got in front of me and wouldn't let me pass i lost my temper at last and arter they had taken the broom away from me and the Drayman and one of the sailormen had said what they'd do to me if i was only fifty years younger they sheered off i locked the gate arterim and went back to the office and i had not been there above arf an hour when somebody started ringing the gate bell as if they was mad i thought it was the cook's lot come back at first so I opened the wicket just a trifle and peeped out. There was a Ansem cab standing outside, and I had hardly got my nose to the crack when the actor chap, still in my clothes, pushed the door open and nipped in. "'You've lost,' he says, pushing the door to and smiling all over. "'Where's your sixpence?' "'Lost?' I says, hardly able to speak. "'Do you mean to tell me you've been to my wife arter all, arter all I said to you?' "'I do,' he says, nodding and smiling again. They were both deceived as easy as easy.' Both, I says, staring at him. Both what? How many wives do you think I've got? What do you mean by it?" "'Arter I left you,' he says, giving me a little poke in the ribs, I picked up a cab, and first leaving my bag at Aldgate, I drove on to your house and knocked at the door. I knocked twice, and then an angry-looking woman opened it and asked me what I wanted. "'It's all right, missus,' I says. I've got our an hour off, and I've come to take you out for a walk. "'What?' she says, drawing back with a start. "'Just a little turn round to see the shops,' I says, "'and if there's anything particular you'd like and it don't cost too much, you shall have it.' I thought at first, from the way she took it, she wasn't used to you giving her things. "'How dare you,' she says, "'I'll have you locked up. How dare you insult a respectable married woman! You wait till my husband comes home!' "'But I am your husband. I says. "'Don't you know me, my pretty? Don't you know your pet sailor boy?' She gave a screech like a steam-engine and then she went next door and began knocking away like mad. Then I see that I had gone to number twelve instead of number fourteen. Your wife, your real wife, came out of number fourteen, and she was worse than the other, but they both thought it was you—there's no doubt of that—they chased me all the way up the road, and if it had not a been for this cab that was just passing, I don't know what would have happened to me." He shook his head and smiled again, and after opening the wicket a trifle and telling the cabman he shouldn't be long. He turned to me and asked me for the sixpence to wear on his watch-chain. "'Sixpence,' I says, "'sixpence. What do you think is going to happen to me when I go home?' "'Oh, I hadn't thought of that,' he says. "'Yes, of course.' "'What about my wife's jealousy?' I says. "'What about the other and her husband a cooper as big as a house?' "'Well, well,' he says, "'one can't think of everything. It'll be all the same a hundred years hence.' "'Look here,' I says, taking his shoulder in a grip of iron, you come back with me now in that cab and explain, d'ye see? That's what you've got to do. All right, he says. Certainly. Is is the husband bad tempered? You'll see, I says, but that's your business. Come along. With pleasure, he says, helping me in. Arf for mo while I tell the cabby where to drive to. He went to the back of the cab, and afore I knew what had happened, the horse had got a flick over the head with a whip and was going along at a gallop. I kept putting the little flap up and telling the cabby to stop, but he didn't take the slightest notice. Arter I had done it three times, he kept it down so as I couldn't open it. There was a crowd round my door when the cab drove up, and in the middle of it was my missus, the woman next door, and her husband what had just come home. Arf a dozen of em helped me out, and afore I could say a word the cabman drove off and left me there. I dream of it now, sometimes, standing there, explaining and explaining, until just as I feel I can't bear it any longer, two policemen come up and help me indoors. If they had helped my missus outside, it would be a easier dream to have. End of his other self, and end of night watches, by W. W. Jacobs.